0: And welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast. I'm Eric Olander. And as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden of Witts University in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good afternoon to you, Kobus. Good afternoon. And a good afternoon to Dan Large, who's joining us again this week from uh, Budapest, Hungary, where he's an assistant professor in the School of Public Policy at Central European University. Dan is also an associate at the South African Institute of International Affairs. We're thrilled to have you back on the show again, Dan. Thank you so much. Likewise. Thanks for having me back. Well, today we're going to actually talk about a, a topic that has been in the news well, a little bit, but it's kind of been a thread. So, we've seen, for example, uh, China deploying uh, UN peacekeepers to Mali following the French intervention there. Then, we saw last year China sending police forces to, to Liberia. 140 People's Armed Police went, were deployed to Liberia. We're seeing China involved, you know, right in the heart of the negotiations to help find a ceasefire in South Sudan with uh, their top diplomat, Zhong Jianhua. China's also involved. anti-piracy operations off the coast of Somalia. And what all of these have in common is the fact that China is showing an increasing presence in what what we're going to call loosely here post-conflict mediation and, and again, loosely these terms post-war reconstruction. And the reason why I say these terms are loose is because in the case of Sudan and South Sudan, China was involved in the post-conflict, and then it went back to conflict, and they're involved. Uh, and now they're, you know, now in post-conflict, and then now a conflict again, just after the June, January 23rd ceasefire. So this is really presenting an interesting case study for China and its growing role in post-conflict mediation. And, and this is actually a specialty of Dan's, which why we're very, very excited to have him on the show today. Um, Dan, when you think of China as a... Uh, post-war reconstruction partner. Uh, they don't usually come to mind in my you know typically you think of the OECD powers typically we think of the former colonial powers and the Americans now south sudan is interesting in part because the united states has a real strong vested interest in supporting a democratic state in south sudan in part as a rival to omar bashir's islamic state in the, in sudan uh, and it's also there's a vested interest for the chinese to be actively involved in this what does china's involvement in sudan's conflict and post-conflict mediation tell us about China's growing role, or at least the perception of China's growing role, uh, on the conflict on the continent.
1: Well, this is a very rich theme indeed. Um, and it might be worth at the outset remembering that, yes, you may not immediately associate China with active engagement in post-conflict settings, but in the case of Sudan, at least, after the 1972 Addis Ababa peace agreement, which ended the war between the North and the South, Uh, This is when China first really became active in southern Sudan in various kinds of ways. So you could say it was an early uh, case of of post-conflict involvement, perhaps, just as, for example, China did send aid when there was a famine in western Sudan uh, in 1983, 1984 uh, as well. So there's a sort of a longer history of, of China's role there. The difference with today is, of course, that then this was more or less a footnote uh, to other efforts by different external actors and, of course, Sudanese actors as well. Now China is very much a headline, and in many ways its informal, indirect role in many conflict-affected or post-conflict countries, not just in Sudan, South Sudan, but other parts of Africa, uh, has necessitated uh, a more uh, direct, overt engagement with a post-conflict policy uh, per se. So what has been a de facto uh, engagement has kind of spilled over into the policy domain. Uh, And China's lack of a developed policy on post-conflict engagement has come increasingly under scrutiny, uh, given that it's exposed in many
2: ways to uh, classic conflict uh, pressures. Um, Dan, do you have an an impression that there is attempts within the Chinese government and then the wider kind of government-linked kind of academia and think tanks in China to try and develop new tools for them to actually deal with these situations?
1: Yes, absolutely. Um, Again, I wouldn't overstate this, um, but there's certainly tangible movement, not just in terms of actual uh, policy uh, movements and changes on the ground, as it were, by different branches of the Chinese government, um, as well as new policy initiatives of a headline variety, including under the FOCAC process with the establishment notably of the China-Africa Partnership for uh, Peace and Security. Um, But in terms of debates about the ideas that might or should inform uh, China's engagement uh, in these areas, there's been very interesting developments of uh, various uh, thinkers in China, which speak of both recognition or an effort to understand existing policy in these contexts to date, as well as possible areas for China to uh, maximize its contribution, but also speak of a critique of uh, the existing efforts uh, mounted by the African Union and particularly Western actors to date. So broadly speaking, in some senses, there's a critique of what has been called the liberal peace, an effort by some Chinese thinkers to uh, imagine Chinese alternatives at the ideational level, not just the practical applied level uh, as well. This, I think, is part of an ongoing conversation. I don't think it's any particularly fixed position because uh, at the actual sort of field level, if you were, uh, this is ultimately something driven by uh, various uh, pressures, including necessary pragmatic adaptation, not necessarily fixed doctrine. So it's a, a moving target, but definitely a rich area to watch closely.
0: Well, I mean, obviously, looking at it closely, this is an area that Deborah Braudigam makes a very good point on. You know, in the China-Africa relationship, people can see in it almost whatever they want. And so when we think of China as a kind of mediator or both in conflict or post conflict situations it allows people on all sides of the narrative to kind of you know mold it to their to their own agenda so for example uh, what we've seen in south sudan with zhong jia china's top africa diplomat there uh, some people have said well this is fantastic china's finally stepping up it's assuming its role as a major global power and we hope now that we're going to see china involved in maybe the middle east we'll start to see them involved in you know other parts of the world because this is the training ground for China's mediation efforts. Okay, that's number one. The other side of it is that, you know, people kind of see it, uh uh-oh, you know, here comes China, the neocolonial power in Africa. It's intervening. It's abandoning some of its long-held policies of non-intervention. We're seeing UN forces now being deployed to Mali, even though they're only there to protect the UN uh, facilities. But nonetheless, it's Chinese armed troops on the African continent. And people can kind of read into it that this is the next evolution of China's engagement in Africa is in a military security context. So to Braudigam's point, you get to see in this what you want. Where do you come down on this? Probably very much in the same light. Uh, I couldn't agree more
1: about this diversity and the necessity to recognize an inherent complexity. Uh, so I'm afraid I'm not going to be very helpful there because uh, as Sudan and South Sudan illustrates very well, uh, there are multiple Chinas um, and it can depend, depend upon Uh, your particular vantage point, uh, of course, in this. I would also say that one of the problems I have with this is perhaps less on the China side and more on broadly the African side. Uh, Just in Sudan and South Sudan, we have not just the current North-South dynamic, which is in the news, particularly the South-South conflict in South Sudan right now. But remember, we've we've got a longer history of China's engagement in Sudan's East-West conflict axis as well. So in some senses, you could say the same about the African perspective or, in this case, Sudan, South Sudan perspectives as well. It can depend a lot upon your particular vantage point and, of course, your framework for analysis. So I think we have to try to join the two together and look beyond these kind of headline catchy uh, narratives and really ask what actually is going on here and thus, thus what it might portend in the future
0: you know kobus let me dan is not helping us out here because you and i traffic <laughs> in the uh, in, in a lot of the more simple kind of analysis but and i guess i'm curious about your perspective in sub saharan africa where so much of the simple analysis emanates from that is we see out of the labor unions in south africa you know china destroying the south african economy we see out of you know zambia michael sada and his wonderful quotes that he had you know when he was the opposition leader and I guess what Dan is kind of telling us is that there are multiple Chinas here. This is a far more complicated question. Um, what do you think the perception, I'd like to, to hear from you in terms of from a sub-Saharan perspective, when you look at what China's doing in in in, uh, in Sudan, uh, do you do you, do you you feel that people understand the
2: complexities or is, is it something that goes over their head? Well, you know, kind of I think in sub-Saharan Africa, China's also increasingly, you know, kind of Multiple, you know, becoming multiple Chinas, um, you know, just in the case of South Africa, it's it's you would both see China characterised as a competitor with South African workers and as an investment partner with actual South African trade trade unions. You know, kind of they they are occasionally Chinese investors are with trade unions within the same kind of in, investment consortia. So you know, kind of I think even here that 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 is a reality in in lots of different ways. Um, looking from here to to, to South Sudan, I mean, and, and I'd, I'd love to hear what Dan thinks about this, is I, I have to wonder, you know, to which extent China really has the the experience of dealing with this kind of situation. You know, kind of, um, you know, China, it may be the cliche about China, so they, they tend to focus on on government-government relationships um, and, you know, kind of discussions with elites. Um, and I'm, I'm not sure exactly, you know, kind of what they're bringing to the table when you, you're dealing with this kind of free-form mutating, kind of, conflict uh, that, that you see at the moment in, in South Sudan where frequently um, if, if just if, if one takes as you know as a general example in, in other African conflicts frequently peace negotiations are used as a way to kind of regroup your forces not necessarily as a from, from a you know an authentic kind of desire to get peace um, so yeah you know kind of especially seen from the perspective that that you the, that Uganda is also involved in this conflict now um, which Jung jinghua has, has refused to actually comment on. Um, Dandy, do you think that China really has skills that it can really bring to to mediate the situation? I think this is an excellent question, Uh, absolutely.
1: Um, And I I would sort of broadly concur uh, with that. Um, If only it were possible to style oneself as the kind of king cobra and his venom as an opposition politician in Zambia, as opposed to the sort of grand rhetoric with Michael Sato as president. I mean, surely there must be a, an informed middle ground uh, between these, these different positions. Um, but here, I think, um, to put this in perspective, uh, three things firstly. Um, the first point is that clearly China had a longer history, not as a mediator, so much as a broker uh, in Sudan over the Darfur crisis. Uh, and that's a key precedent which perhaps has been uh, overlooked. Secondly, of course, again, more as a broker than a mediator in a strict sense China's role between Sudan and South Sudan in terms of some of the unfinished business of the 2005 peace agreement has been notable um, and has involved efforts essentially to bridge differences uh, between the two, partly driven, of course, by self-interested reasons as well. But thirdly, and much overlooked, is the fact that China has gone beyond dealing simply with the state parties officially defined it's broad the range of actors that it deals with to include opposition uh, politicians stroke fighters in sudan uh, as well as south sudan as well so, so it now had a relatively full spectrum of contacts but the key thing which i think you raised is whether or not this can be converted in terms of effective leverage and whether or not china can make a decisive difference which is what some of the headlines have been suggesting of late my position is that it's simply not a magic bullet at all uh, that it doesn't have the leverage that people imagine or want it to have uh, and if you take its relation in South Sudan today uh, its dealings with the SBLM of 2014 are almost totally different from its dealings with the National Congress Party of 2007 uh, 2008 in terms of China's interest as well as broader conflict dynamics as well. Um, And so that's where China is treading a very difficult uh, path between wanting to be seen to be part of the solution, but also, I think, in its own terms, recognizing that there are inherent limits to its ability and the ability of all external actors to actually decisively leverage the conflict in its current incarnation.
0: Let me see if I can put see. another theory your way, and, and tell me what you think of this. And, Kobus, I'd actually like to get your take on this as well. That the other part of the narrative here is that people look at China now as the world's second-largest economy, uh, as an emerging global military power. We're seeing this certainly here in Asia, where there's a lot of concern over China's growing military might. I mean, we're we're facing a situation now in the East China Sea uh, where you've got the U.S., the Japanese, and the American uh, and the Chinese militaries navies all facing off. Against Against one another. Uh, and I think there's a certain expectation of what the behavior of a global power is supposed to be like. So we think of the Soviets, we think of the Americans. And, and David Shambaugh, who's the professor at George Washington University, a very, very famous sinologist, uh, he kind of describes China as the partial power. Now, on the one hand, he talks about Chinese incompetence, that they're just not that good at, at, at mediation and negotiation because it's never been really part of their diplomatic. Toolkit, uh, But at the same time, he, he also kind of alludes to the fact that maybe they really don't want to do it. Um, they're so interest-driven in terms of focusing on their economic interests abroad that bringing world peace or even regional peace eh, – That's not their thing. That might be America's mission is to democratize the whole world. But you know what? The Chinese are going to take care of what is important to the Chinese. And if the rest of the world falls apart, that's OK with them. So I guess my point here and my question that I'd like to get your feedback on is, are we asking the wrong question by saying, should the Chinese play a greater role in post-conflict mediation? Because maybe that's just not their thing. Nation building? Eh. That's an American Western concept. It may not be a Chinese thing. I think, um, yeah, in in some sense, this speaks of uh, relative,
1: I would emphasize relative inexperience in in China's sort of diplomacy uh, playbook, uh, if you will. Um, At the same time, I wouldn't go too far with that because I wouldn't want to underestimate the experience that they've had uh, in Sudan and South Sudan uh, over broadly the past decade or so in terms of that diplomatic political track. Um, I think at the same time, one could recognize sort of contra some of the media analysis that emphasize oil or or growing power or or status, that uh, we are are talking about vulnerability, not strength here, insofar as the conflict is concerned, and the way in which it affects Chinese interests of all different kinds in South Sudan uh, and and Sudan, of course. Um, I think that um, this is a work in progress. Uh, They are engaging with these issues uh, and trying to work out avenues for effective engagement. Uh, so there's a learning process underway. Um, yes, it's perhaps not the first thing that China would want to promote—an uh, intrusive form of uh, of nation building or, or or state building. But they have their de facto equivalents, in, including addressing uh, problems in, in state capacity. And that's what they were trying to do in South Sudan before the current conflict uh, kicked off. Um, and in many ways, they do have incentives and reasons to want to be seen to be more involved and to be more involved as well. It is in everyone's interests in South Sudan, for example, that the conflict is resolved as soon as possible uh, and and some sort of sense of uh, normality and and future uh, peace and progress uh, can be uh, restored. So, again, it's this combination of external uh, expectations and these internal pressures, which in part are trying to be bridged, which is why you end up with a messy, de facto, pragmatic, ad hoc evolution of China's role, not some sort of centrally directed uh, grand plan. Uh, I I see this more as being events-driven than anything sort of dreamt up uh, in Beijing. So they're kind of making it up as they go? Um, I would say so, yes. And and having to respond above all to events and being uh, forced to engage in the types of policy arenas that perhaps they would not have imagined uh, needing to do before. Um, so I think we're in a phase of adjustment um, and and sort of, uh, you know, the, the future is uncertain. What is the case is, of course, that South Sudan happens to be a test case way too soon for this new FOCAC security uh, partnership, which is predicated large upon uh, enhancing the capacity of the African Union Peace and Security Council to respond better with this mantra of African solutions for African problems. Um, so it does speak of this broader interest uh, in, in these issues across the board. So I would say it wasn't really, we shouldn't really be necessarily interested in the military side of this uh, so much as its relations to security uh, and development. But finally, I think that in many ways, um, if you think of Sudanese history and the history of mediation and peace diplomacy there, then you have Addis Ababa 1972, uh, Naivasha 2005, Beijing 2014, well, if it ended the conflict, I think everyone would welcome it.
2: Yeah. Gobus, you know, what's your thought? I, I wonder also um, if it might have also have something to do with the volatility or the particular nature of oil as as a commodity. Obviously, you know, kind of one, one of the main reasons why China gets characterised as, as a, a possible mediator in this in this conflict is because it's such a it buys so much of South Sudanese oil, um, and you know obviously the the history of, of trying to to um, trying to build a state, you know you, you can't you can't think of, a, of that concept without also thinking about America's attempts to build a, to of, to build a state in Iraq, um, and I wonder you know kind of the the whether the very nature of oil the fact that it can pretty much be sold to anyone you know kind of there's there's always a buyer for it Um, and that it's, you know, kind of it... You know, kind of, it, it, there's no inherent logic to who, in, in terms of who the oil must be sold to. You know, kind of if, whether that adds some level of chaos to to the situation. That's a, a very particularly kind of early 21st century kind of chaos. Um, you know, kind of that 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 breaks it out of the kind of Cold War, either align yourself with the U.S. or the or the Soviet Union kind of logic. That you know, kind of that that shaped earlier attempts to, of at state building and 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 creating stability. I don't know what you guys think.
0: Well, I mean, to your point, Cobus, you know, state building might very well be a pre-20th century, a pre-21st century concept because... Since the 21st century has started, we haven't really had any good examples of it. It has failed in Iraq, it has failed in Afghanistan. Really, I think the last best example that we've had uh, was was Kosovo and Bosnia, and even that is showing signs of strain today. Uh, and, and that may have only held together because of billions of dollars of, of EU money and, and a continued NATO force that's been there. So, in some senses, maybe the, the, the expectations are unrealistic for what state building and nation building actually is. I guess, I think what was most interesting about uh, Dan's comments were the fact that this is improvisational. This is something that they're making up. And I think a lot of people overestimate China's competence many times uh, in terms of having a big grand master plan. Uh, And that, Kobus, goes to some of your earlier points about the fact that many people assign kind of these of imperial, neocolonial types of uh, prescriptions to the Chinese, which are really, you know, we've debunked countless times, and that they, they don't have a plan. They're just, they're kind of making it up as they go. So I thought, that, you know, interesting. Final thoughts,
2: Gobert. Yeah, and, and also, and also, you know, kind of that there are inherent limits to one's to one's influence if one is simply a big oil buyer, you know, kind of because if, if that is simply one's role in, in, in you know, um, in the conflict, and I'm not saying that is China's only role in that conflict, obviously, as China's Dan has pointed out. There's a lot of historical, you know, kind of relationships there. But if one's power is simply I buy a lot of oil, lots of other people also buy lots of oil, you know, kind of. So there's nothing necessarily inherently, uh, you know, kind of powerful in that, you know, kind of or, or permanently powerful in that position. Yeah, and there's certainly no leverage there. Uh, Once again,
0: Dan, we have exhausted our time way too fast. It's a fascinating discussion every time we have you on the show, and we're just so grateful that you could make more time for us. Uh, And uh, once again, Dan Large is an assistant professor at the School of Public Policy at Central European University in Budapest, Hungary. He's also an associate at the South African Institute of International Affairs, and he is one of the smartest guys out there on China, Sudan, South Sudan. So I really recommend you take a look at at uh, what he's reading and writing these days. And if they want to follow you, all of our legions of podcast listeners want to follow what you are reading and writing these days, what's the best way they can stay in touch? Well, the, the current
1: focus, I suppose, for me is a digital archive I run with the Rift Valley Institute called the Sudan Open Archive, uh, which gives you all the history behind the current conflict, amongst other things. That's available at www.sudanarchive.net. Otherwise, um, I'm on Twitter at Dan large.
0: Wonderful. Well, we'll definitely uh, keep, keep, keep track of what you're doing these days. And Cobus, if people want to follow what you are doing, what's the best way for them to stay in
2: touch with you? Um, I'm on our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash China Africa Project. Um, And I'm also on Twitter at Stadnesque. That's S-T-A-D-E-N-E-S-Q-U-E. Once again, that's facebook.com slash China
0: Africa Project. We're posting uh, every two to three hours the top China Africa headlines of the day. Uh, Many of those posts then generate a lot of exciting discussion uh, with uh, students, academics, uh, people from all over the world. So it's a great place to kind of come together, share some of your ideas uh, about what's going on in China-Africa relations. Also, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at eolander E-O-L-A-N-D-E-R. I'm tweeting the top China-Africa headlines almost every day. And finally, if you want to follow this podcast, the best way to do it is over on iTunes, but you can listen to us on SoundCloud, on Stitcher, on the BlackBerry Network, on your Kindle. Uh, And uh, we would love to hear from you, so leave comments everywhere for us. If you like it, if you hate it, either way, we love the comments. Uh, We'll be Again, soon with another edition of the China in Africa podcast. Until then, thank you so much for listening.